Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. The Lord has put this message on my heart a few months ago, and I've been looking forward to sharing it with you. This morning, we're actually kicking off a, a short series that we're going to be doing on our, our finances called Stretched. And I, I thought I would just start out with a, a definition for the word stretch, and that is capable of being made longer or wider without tearing or breaking. So, so that's the definition of stretch, to be capable of being made longer or wider without tearing or breaking. But I thought perhaps more effective than a definition would be an illustration of, of, of stretching. And so to help me with that, I my friend Claire Wessling, uh, part of our Joyland ministry. Yeah, we can give her a round of applause. Claire and uh, Claire's daddy and I grew up going to this church together. And um, we're going to have a competition because that's what Westlings do. They have competitions. Uh, uh, we're going to have a competition to see who can stretch the most. All right. So, so here I go. Uh, I'm going to start out, you know, okay. I, I think I lose. All right. <laughs> see, I see Hubert laughing at me, but if you came up here, you're not going to win either. All right. So, all right. Now we're going to try to get back up. Okay. All right. So that, that was, that's pretty good. Claire, you win. Yeah. Yeah. You, now. <laughs> Now, now you're taunting me, okay, and a twirl, that was, that's great. So anyway, let's give Claire a round of applause. That's what stretch looks like. Thanks. Good job, sweetie. She's a lot better at stretching than me. <laughs> now, when we think about stretching, I think most of us do think about stretching our muscles because we definitely wouldn't want those to tear or break. I, I feel like it was getting close there just a moment ago. But when we think about our finances being stretched, we don't want them to tear or break either. I think most of us have felt like we've been at a place where we were being stretched financially at one point or another. I I recognize that some of you feel like you're in that place right now. Now, next week, Pastor Chris is going to be talking about the idea that when it comes to our financial priorities, God's order brings us peace, while our order brings us pain. God's order brings us peace. Our order brings us pain. I agree with him, and I think we're actually going to see an example of this today in the book of Genesis, where we encounter a young man named Esau, who experienced a great temptation, and in the midst of his temptation, he pursued his order instead of God's order, and made a specific choice that brought him to a place of tears and sorrow, to a place that he had never wanted or intended to be, but that's what life is like. Whether we're talking about our finances or any other area, when we're stretched, our intentions, that is what we say we want, aren't nearly as important as what we actually do, our decisions. That's what's really going to count. What we actually do is more important than what we intend. Now, sometimes when we're stretched, we're stretched because of choices that we have made. And sometimes we are stretched because of circumstances that are completely beyond our control. But regardless of how we got to a point where we're being stretched, when we're being stretched, it usually feels uncomfortable. It feels awkward. Being stretched usually requires us to make some changes in our lives, which will take some effort to make them work. Being stretched isn't easy. 
it's hard. And I think this is true whether we're talking about being stretched financially or being stretched relationally or physically or spiritually. In tough times, there will always be a temptation for us to give up or give in, which is why it's so important for us to look past our circumstances, look beyond our circumstances, and focus on the reasons it will be worth it if we hang in there to the end. What I'm getting at is that when we are being stretched, when we feel that tension, what we need is perspective. Even if it wasn't our choice to be in this situation, to be stretched, we can't focus on our current circumstances. Instead, we need to focus on our future goal. So with this in mind, I want to give you an assignment, a homework assignment. It's something that you're mostly going to do after you leave church today, but I want you to start right now. I want you to take out a piece of paper or take out your phone. And I'm going to give you a prompt. And I want you to write it down or or type it out. I want it to start out something like this. Ten years from now, I want my life to look like this, dot, dot, dot. Or you could choose five years from now, I want my life to look like this. Or you could pick another period of time. When I graduate from high school, I want my life to look like this, dot, dot, dot. Or when I graduate from college or, or some other specific point in time. And then sometime later, maybe today, or maybe a little bit later this week, I want you to come back to your phone or your piece of paper, and I want you to look at that prompt about what you want your life to look like in the future. I want you to pray about it, and then I want you to write out or type out whatever comes to mind. What do you want to see God doing in your life 10 years from now? If you're single, do you want to be married? If so, what kind of person do you want to be married to? If you're married, what kind of marriage do you want to have? What do you want to see God doing? What about with your children or perhaps with your grandchildren? What do you want to be true about your health in 10 years? What about that habit or or that addiction in 10 years? What about your finances? How much do you want to have saved in 10 years? How much do you want to have given away in 10 years? What about your future goals and your profession? or in your community, or or even in our church. Ten years from now, five years from now, at some point in the future, this is what I want my life to look like. This is my preferred vision of my future. Now, the idea here is that you're trying to establish a sense of perspective for your life. Because when you are being stretched, when you feel that tension, there's always going to be a temptation to try to say, I just want to get out of these circumstances. I don't want to be here. Whether it was my choice to be in them or circumstances just kind of happened and now I'm in this place where I'm being stretched. There's always this desire like, I don't like being uncomfortable. I don't like feeling insecure. I want to get to a place where I do feel secure, where I do feel comfortable. And so I'm going to make some decisions. But instead of giving in to your immediate desires, you need to remind yourself of your ultimate goals. As Andy Stanley says, you can't trade the ultimate for the immediate. You can't trade the ultimate for the immediate. Now, I really appreciate that quote from Andy. And as we go through our passage today in Genesis chapter 25, we're going to see how Esau handled a critical moment in his life where his ultimate goals and his immediate desires were certainly in tension with each other. And I want to credit Andy Stanley for initially pointing out this dynamic and how they played out in the life of Esau. I'm indebted to him for the structure, to Andy Stanley for the structure of this message because about a decade ago, I attended a leadership conference in Atlanta and Andy was teaching from Genesis 25 from this passage about the potential pitfalls of leadership and how mismanaged desires can sabotage our future. And as I said, a few months ago, I just was feeling that we needed to look at this passage. 
Now, as we look at Genesis 25, when we talk about our desires, we're going to use a specific word, and it's a word that's going to make sense in the context of this particular passage. We're going to use the word appetite. And when we talk about our appetites, obviously, I think our appetite for food is probably the most common thing that we could think of. But we also sometimes talk about our appetites for other things, things like sex or for money or for stuff. Less obvious are our appetites for security or for success or recognition or I want to be right or I want to win or I want to be accepted. I'm sure you can think of other appetites or desires that we all have as humans. And here's the thing about all of our appetites. They all have one thing in common. They're all united by a single word. And that word is more. Our appetites are never fully satisfied. They always want more. Now, to be clear, our appetites are not in and of themselves negative. In fact, I believe that our appetites, our desires that we all have, are actually hardwired into us by God himself. Our God is our creator and our designer, and he made us so that we would have desires. That, that's actually a difference between Christianity and, and some other like major religions in our world that, that view desires as just intrinsically bad. That's not what we think. We think God gave us our desires. But because our appetites always want more, how we manage our appetites and desires will determine the direction of our lives. We need to take control of our appetites. We need to harness our appetites or they will take control of us. That's certainly true of Esau in our story. He was a young man who had everything going for him. He came from a wealthy family. He was successful. He had all of the resources he needed for his future. If you had known Esau when he was a young man, you would have thought he was destined for greatness. But then something happened to him which changed his life forever. He made a decision which permanently altered his life story. And it was all because of one thing. His appetites overwhelmed him. In one moment, he was consumed by his desire for something immediate. And as a result, he made a foolish choice to sacrifice the ultimate. Now, if we're going to understand Esau's story, and I promise in just a moment, we're going to get into the actual passage in Genesis 25. If we're going to understand Esau's story in Genesis 25, we need to understand the significance of of a particular concept that was... uh, it was not unique to the Middle East, but it was certainly uh, 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 the prevalent you know, thing in their culture in that day in families. And that is this idea of a birthright. Now, Esau was actually a twin. He had a twin brother named Jacob. But even though Esau and Jacob were only born a few minutes apart, in the culture of their day, their relative status in their family was completely different because Esau was the oldest son. And as a result... In that culture, he had more privileges than his brother Jacob. He had the birthright. And Bible scholars tell us that there were three main things associated with having the birthright. The first is money. Because he was born first and he had the birthright, he was going to get double the inheritance of his brother Jacob. The second thing is authority. When his father Isaac died, Esau would be the legal and spiritual leader for their family. And then the third thing is a specific blessing from God. Somehow the blessing of God, which had come down to Abraham and then was passed down to his son Isaac, would then be passed down to the son with the birthright, the oldest son in the family. 
So with that sort of setting up the background of this passage, let's jump to verse 29 in Genesis chapter 25, where we read, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. Right here, this is the introduction of an appetite. Esau said to his brother Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. So apparently what's been going on is that Esau has been out working in the field or maybe he's been out hunting. He comes home and he's just overwhelmed by the delicious aroma of this meal that his brother Jacob has been preparing in the kitchen. Instantly, his appetite for food is fully engaged and he thinks, I must have some of that stew. Now, to be hungry, to want to eat something, this is a perfectly normal, legitimate appetite. And it reminds me of one of the main points that we need to understand about our appetites. And that is, God created them, but sin distorted them. God created them, but sin distorted them. I I sort of mentioned this before, but our appetites are not inherently negative. God made them. The problem is that they become distorted by sin. And Esau's appetite for food was completely normal, but it was about to come up against something that was far more important than food which completely raised the stakes of the conversation he's having with his brother, Jacob. In verse 31, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, I don't know if many of you grew up in the church world, but, but I did. You know, I was in church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And so I grew up hearing this story fairly often. And I have to say that verse 31 always just seems so unrealistic to me. Right? Like, Esau is hungry, and Jacob immediately asks, like if this was a negotiation, Jacob immediately asks for the most valuable thing that Esau possessed. I mean, who would trade their birthright for a bowl of stew? Who would trade all of that money, all of that authority and influence, and all of that blessing for a bowl of stew? We have to ask the question, Esau, why would you do that? Esau, why would you even consider that? Who would ever give up some, so much for something so little? For one temporary bowl of stew. Who would trade their future for something as small as a bowl of stew? Who would throw away their marriage? Who would throw away the respect of their children? Who would throw away their reputation in their community? All for one bowl of stew. Who would do that? And the answer is, you might. If, if it was the right bowl of stew, you might. I might, if it was the right bowl of stew. I mean, we hear about people throwing everything away for a bowl of stew all the time. We hear about celebrities who seem to have it all and they, they throw it away for a bowl of stew. So many of us know people, maybe in our families or, or at work, people that we've known for a long time and and we just can't understand it, but they seem to give up everything that they've got in life just for a bowl of stew. Some of you have been very painfully affected by people in your family giving up something valuable for a bowl of stew. Maybe your parents did that. They traded their relationship with you in your home because they wanted to have a bowl of stew right now. They gave up all those years of being together in the future because they wanted to have a bowl of stew 
right now. Now, their bowl of stew took the form of a pill or a bottle or a habit or a relationship with some guy or some girl. And maybe they're not even with that person anymore. But they traded that relationship with you and it's affected you your entire life. And when we hear stories about people who throw it all away for a bowl of stew, they're tragic. But the truth is, even though they're tragic, they're they're not really that surprising. I mean, we hear about stories all the time. And the reason that they're not really surprising is because we all understand that on some level, our appetites are really powerful. And I think that we also understand, and this is the second point that I want to make about our appetites, is that they're never fully and finally satisfied. I, I talked about this earlier. We always want more. An appetite always wants more. In his book, Love Beyond Reason, John Ortberg tells a story about a little girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the golden arches. There she saw the opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius had named the Happy Meal. May I have it, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. In fact, I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents said. That toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. We're not going to get it. But, but you don't understand, she thought. Because this little girl understood she wasn't just getting fries and chicken McNuggets and a dinosaur stamp. They were offering her happiness. That's what she was really buying. So she explained, I want that Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything before. And if I get it, I'll never ask for anything ever again. I promise, no more complaining, no more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. And her parents thought, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So they bought her a Happy Meal. And in the story, it worked. The little girl never asked for anything ever again. And that's why it's a fairy tale, because that's not how it works in real life. John asks, does life ever work that way? He writes, you, you would think that after a while, children would catch on, that they would say to themselves, you know, a Happy Meal doesn't seem to bring me lasting happiness. I'm not going to get suckered by a Happy Meal this time. But that's not what happens. When the excitement wears off, they need a new fix. They need another Happy Meal. So they keep buying them and buying them and buying them and they keep not working and not working and not working. In fact, the only one Happy Meals bring happiness to is McDonald's. Ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that big grin on his face all the time? Billions and billions of Happy Meals sold. John writes, but of course, only a child would be so naive. Only a child would be foolish enough to believe that a change in circumstance could bring lasting contentment. Or maybe not. Many of us, we live our lives as if someday something will appear that will totally satisfy our appetites. But the truth is, that day will never come. If you're a student who's in the audience today, I just want you to know that if there's something in you, as you feel the tension between these desires of something for right now and something that you really want in the future, and you think, someday when I'm 30, it won't be like that. Or, or 40 or 50, or maybe when I'm a grandparent, I, I know I won't struggle with this kind of tension anymore. And I just have to say, the only time you won't struggle with this tension is someday when you're dead, right? Like until then, it's, you're gonna deal with this for the rest of your life. 
When you get older, you don't necessarily get any smarter. Your Happy Meals just get more expensive. We will always want more because our appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied. Look at verse 32. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Now, again, somebody, we just feel like this need to give Esau a little perspective. Hey, man, I know you're hungry, but you walked into the camp. You might have low blood sugar, but you're not about to die. But he's like, what do I care? I, I have to have it right now. It's all that matters. And this is the third thing I want us to see about our appetites. Our desires always whisper now, never later. Our appetites, they want it now, not at some point in the future. Our appetites never want to be delayed or deferred. Everything for our appetites is urgent and demands to be satisfied immediately, no matter how much it costs. For one bowl of stew, Esau gave up the legacy of what God had in mind for him. Esau allowed his current appetite for the stew to blur his vision of the future. And this is something that we're all going to face. Every single month, every single year, each of us will be offered a temporary bowl of stew, something that is all about now and never about later. And eventually, the right bowl of stew is going to come along, or you're going to be in the right set of circumstances, and you're going to see it. And you're going to be tempted to make a trade. We will be tempted to let our current appetite blur our vision for the future. We will be tempted to trade the ultimate for the immediate. Now, psychologists and scientists have been exploring and investigating this dynamic of our desires and appetites for years. Did you know that when you have an appetite for something, something actually happens physiologically in your brain? You can Google this on your own if you want to find out more regarding what happens neurologically when we want something. Uh, you can Google uh, Dan Gilbert at, at, at Harvard. He, he's written about something, a specific phenomenon that, that I want to focus in on uh, today, which is called impact bias. Now, impact bias happens when a person has a simple appetite. It could be for almost anything. It could be for food or the desire to be loved It could be a a sexual appetite. It could be a desire to be respected or to own something of value. And when we have this appetite, when we have this desire, impact bias causes our brain to magnify this appetite out of proportion. Impact bias is a nice way of telling, uh, is a nice way of saying that our brain lies to us. We think, if I can only have that experience, our brain says, it will be awesome when it's really just going to be okay. Our brain tells us that if you could just do this, accomplish this, be with this person, have that experience, on a scale of one to 10, it's going to be an eight or a nine. But but that's just our brain lying to us. It's it's really going to be like a three or a four. Study after study has shown that because of impact bias, we tend to be really bad at predicting how future events will affect us emotionally. That's why we have things like buyer's remorse. We're at the mall and we're like, Oh, I've got to have that. That's awesome. We're at the concert and we're like, oh, I need this like merch. You know, it's going to be great. It'll make me so happy. And then like a few weeks later, we get the credit card bill and we're like, I don't even know where that shirt is anymore. Like, or there's a new phone and it would just be so much better than the one I have now. Maybe that one will make me happy. Like that's what, where buyer's remorse comes from. We thought something would make us happier than it actually did. 
Impact bias tricks our brains into believing that whatever we have to pay, it will be worth it. Let me share with you one of my favorite examples of impact bias. It comes from the life of Elvis Presley. One night in 1976, Elvis and some of his friends were at his Graceland estate. And Elvis was talking to his friends about this amazing sandwich he had had a few weeks earlier when he had been skiing in Colorado. He'd gone to this restaurant called the Colorado Mine Company where he'd eaten this sandwich. And I actually looked up the instructions for making the sandwich. Here's what it consisted of. You take a whole loaf of Italian bread and slice it lengthwise. You then hollow out the loaf and slather the entire thing in margarine. Then you add a whole jar of jelly and a whole jar of creamy peanut butter, creating two large boats of PB&J. Then add a whole pound of fried bacon. Then reunite the sandwich halves, deep fry the whole thing, and serve. And for that, the Colorado Mine Company charged $49.95, which in modern money is about 200 bucks, kind of calculating inflation. Well, as Elvis was talking to his buddies about this amazing sandwich, impact bias began to set in. And so he decided, I need to have that sandwich again. And I don't want to wait till the next time I'm out in Colorado. I want to go right now. So he ordered his jet, the Lisa Marie, to be gassed up and made ready to go. And that night, he and his friends flew to Denver. They had called ahead to the restaurant, and when they landed at 1.40 a.m., they taxied to a private hangar where there were 22 sandwiches waiting for them on silver trays, along with cases of Dom Perignon and Perrier. (coughs) They ate together for two hours, and then without ever leaving the airplane hangar, they got back on the jet and traveled back to Graceland. The entire trip, including food and fuel costs, is estimated to have cost the king $16,000. Which again, factoring in for inflation, is close to $125,000 for a sandwich. I do not feel nearly as bad about buying Happy Meals, right? Okay. By the way, can you guess the name of the sandwich? Maybe if you're a big Elvis fan, you, you know this. I'm not making this up. It's called the Fool's Gold Sandwich. Impact bias makes us fools, It makes us think that something will be worth it even when it won't be. It makes us think that it's going to be awesome when it's really just going to be, ah. To me, impact bias is the only way to explain the timeshare industry. But but that could just be my own personal buyer's remorse. I don't know. Impact bias is why Esau says, who needs a birthright? I have a bowl of stew right now. I don't... You need to understand... You have a connection with Esau, because we're all like Esau. And I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how invested you are in prayer and coming to church and reading your Bible, how much you've memorized the scripture. That's going to have an influence on your life. But what will sort of determine the direction of your life is not how much of the Bible you know. It's how you are able to manage your appetites and desires. Again, this is because our intentions are not nearly as important as our actual decisions. This is certainly true for Esau. In verse 33, we read, Jacob said to him, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to his brother, selling his birthright to Jacob. Now, again, as as we read this part of the story, we have to recognize 
that we have the exact same propensity as Esau to give up our future opportunities and legacy for an appetite that we want to satisfy today, for an appetite we want to satisfy right now. Just like him, there is something in all of us that is willing to trade the ultimate for the immediate. I mean, just think about your life. I've been thinking about mine this week. Don't we all want to be healthy? I know I do. And I still eat too much. We all still eat junk. We want to be great dads. We want to have great relationships with our children. We want to be a great father to our sons and to our daughters. But then we're we're too busy at work or with our hobbies or watching sports or whatever it is that we're interested in. Maybe we're just messing around on our phones so we aren't fully present and engaged with our children. We intend for one kind of relationship, but we take a bowl of stew and we end up missing out on that because we make a decision to not actually be with them. Singles in our culture, they want to have intimacy with their future spouse. They want to have a great marriage someday. But then as they're going through their dating years, they end up making compromises and going too far physically, crossing boundaries that they know they shouldn't. Or they spend the night with someone that they aren't even committed to. And they take that baggage with them into their future. We want to have a marriage where we feel safe and secure, where our spouse feels safe and secure. But then something happens. We feel disrespected or a decision is made that we don't agree with. And in that moment, we have an appetite to win to be vindicated that we were right. And so we lash out at our spouse and we treat them in a way that if our friends could see what we had done, we would be so embarrassed. We'd be so ashamed. When it comes to our finances, we wanna be out of debt. We want financial freedom. But at the same time, we also want the latest gadgets. We want a nicer home. We want a better vacation. We want, you know, whatever it is that costs us something. And so whatever it is, despite our intentions to be financially free, we make decisions that drive us deeper into debt. None of us are all that far removed from Esau. We all have the propensity to trade something big in the future for something small like a bowl of stew right now. Just like him, we trade the ultimate for the immediate. We give up something that could be in the future for something that we have an appetite for right now. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. He ate And he drank, and then he got up and left. Those are such sad words. The stew was gone, and so was his birthright. And I think one of the big problems in this story is that there was no one to reframe Esau's appetite and put it into context for him. Esau said, what good is a birthright for me? And he needed a friend to say, well, actually, it's pretty valuable. Your future will be really different because of that birthright. You're going to have a lot more money. You're going to have a lot more power and authority and influence. You're going to have a great blessing in the future. That's that's what the birthright is. What good is it? That's, it's pretty good. 
That's what's at stake. He needed a friend. Someone to reframe the situation, to reframe his appetite. And all of us need godly friends. That's why small groups are so important in our church. We talk about God time and go time, but it's really important that we have group time. We need people in our lives who know what's really going on with us, who can speak into our lives and help us to reframe the choices we're about to make. Because so often our appetites blind us to see the foolish decision we're about to make. We're so focused on what's right in front of us that we can't see what's waiting for us in the future. We genuinely, we just can't see it. And so we need a friend to speak into our lives. At the end of the service today, you can go out into the cafe and Pastor Paul will be at the next steps table and he oversees our small group ministry and you can talk with him about how you can get connected into a, a small group. We all need that. Because we need other people's help to remind us to reframe things so that we don't trade the ultimate for the immediate. But then, of course, there are certainly moments in our lives where we don't have someone there. We're kind of like Esau. Or maybe, you know, Esau was at least with Jacob. Someone was trying to take advantage of him. But sometimes we're all by ourselves. And we're in a situation where we have to make a decision. Or we have an opportunity And we think nobody else is going to know that everybody does stuff like this. No one's really going to call me out on this. And so we need someone or something within our hearts and within our minds to remind us what really matters to me. We need to help ourselves by by reframing our appetite and say, what's really important to me? And that's why I gave you that assignment to write down what you want to see God do in your future. And I encourage you to think about whatever it is you write down regularly. Think about your preferred preferred future and temptation in the present. Oh, it doesn't compare to that. If you write it down on a piece of paper, you need to put that piece of paper where you're going to see it regularly. If you if you type it up on your phone, I want to encourage you put a you know create a kind of reminder alarm so at least weekly you're you're being reminded of what it is that you're aiming for, what you're shooting for. I'm certain that Esau would have benefited from writing down and reviewing his future goals and thinking about what his legacy could be. According to the book of Hebrews, after selling his birthright for a bowl of stew, Esau experienced the incredible pain of regret and rejection. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, (laughs) these are sad words. Even though he sought the blessing that he had despised, that birthright, even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. If only he had focused on the future, but instead he traded the ultimate for the immediate. He couldn't reframe. And so he made a terrible decision. And it was a terrible decision that lasted with him, that stayed with him for the rest of his life. In contrast to Esau, we read earlier in that same chapter, in Hebrews chapter 12, that Jesus was focused on the future, which is what got him through the most difficult moment in his life. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. 
and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And that kind of sets up verse 2, which I think is so important for us to remember. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus kept his focus on the future for the joy set before him. What was that joy that sustained him as it would have been so easy to grow weary and lose heart as he was facing the cross, as he was experiencing excruciating pain and rejection and betrayal and denial, humiliation. He was focused on the joy set before him. He was being stretched beyond the point of imagination, but he didn't run away from it because he was focused on that future joy. And what was that? Well, it was the glory for his father, but it was also a future relationship with us. You were so valuable to Jesus that he was willing to endure all of that. He kept focusing on the future that God had in mind for him and it allowed him to endure. It would have been so easy for Jesus to just bail out and escape from all that he was going through and suffering through. But he wouldn't trade the ultimate for the immediate and praise God that he didn't. That's our hope. In fact, that's what we're gonna celebrate here in just a moment. Today, we're gonna receive communion, which celebrates what Jesus accomplished on the cross with his death and burial and then his resurrection. Communion is a tangible expression of what we have to look forward to someday in heaven. In Matthew chapter 26, we read, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What Jesus is saying is, if we keep running the race that has been marked out for us, if we keep holding on with perseverance... We're going to be welcomed into his father's house. And on that day, what we're hoping to hear from our heavenly father is well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into your master's happiness. And on that day, as you experience the ultimate, you will be so glad you didn't trade it all away for the immediate. And when we get into our father's house. Jesus is saying there in verse 29 that there's a day coming when he's gonna drink it anew with us. He's gonna receive this meal with us in his father's kingdom. And I want you to know that someday as we receive the bread and the cup from Jesus in heaven, it will not look like this. (laughs) It will not be prepackaged. It's gonna be way better. But here's what I wanna encourage you this morning. As you take communion, I want to ask you to pray about something. Is there a present appetite in your life that has the potential to derail what it is that you really want for your future? 
you know what the ultimate goal that you have for your life is. But how are you guarding yourself right now from sacrificing your future rewards for a bowl of stew today? What's the thing in your life right now that is consuming your mind? What is it? God had a plan for Esau's life, but he missed out on it because of a bowl of stew. And I don't want that to happen to you. And I don't want it to happen to me either. So as we pray this morning, let's agree together that we're gonna encourage each other that we will not be dominated and mastered by our appetites, but we're gonna keep them in proper perspective and reframe them around what God wants for us for the future. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son We thank you for Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. And Lord, as we take the bread and the juice representing his body and his blood that were given for us, Lord, we thank you that Jesus, you were not like Esau and you didn't trade the ultimate for the immediate. And so Jesus, we want to follow your example. We want to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to follow in your footsteps. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would bring to our mind, if there's anything that's been going on, where we've been feeling this temptation to trade something that is so valuable in the future for something temporary right now. Lord, if there's something right now that has become a, like a bowl of stew that's in front of us and we're feeling temptation, I pray that you would just share that with us and, Lord, help us to resist Lord, help us to reframe that appetite. Lord, maybe we need to talk to a friend and get some help and get some encouragement, whatever it might be. Lord, we don't wanna trade the ultimate for the immediate. Lord Jesus, thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.